By the time we reach middle age, our lives have taken certain paths. Sometimes these paths are close to what we imagined in our youth, but more often they're dramatically different. We come to realize that there are larger, invisible forces that tend to have just as much a say or more in how our lives go as we do. In her 1871 novel, Middlemarch, the English writer George Eliot explored this experience of middleness, a time halfway between what has already happened and what has yet to happen, a time when we feel more sharply our own limitations. It's not necessarily a kind novel to the ambitions of young people. It's a novel that gains not just with perspective, the perspective of rereading, but perspective on one's own, on one's own life and, and on the paths one's life has taken, particularly the paths one's life has taken that you didn't necessarily will. I'm Nicholas Dames. I'm a professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia. Eliot's interest in middleness extended beyond just middle age. Middles are very important. Eliot, and that means both Middle England, where the, the book is set, the middle of the century, um, importantly, the middle classes. This is a novel that is significantly colored by characters who belong to one or another sub-variety of the middle class, and also middle age. Um, that is not necessarily middle age in a contemporary sense, but that is no longer being young, having made certain choices that have put your life in a certain direction. And also being in the middle of an experience. So she's very interested in, in, in putting characters in the middle of a, of a long-term experience, either a failing marriage, or being in a career with uncertain prospects, or accumulating debt that you're not sure if you're ever gonna be able to pay off. And not thinking about how those experiences necessarily start or finish, but what it's like to be in the middle of those. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Nicholas Dames to discuss George Eliot's Middlemarch. Can you tell us about George Eliot's remarkable life? George Eliot, of course, is, is a pseudonym. Uh, her name, birth name is Marianne Evans. She's born in the Midlands, in the English Midlands, in Warwickshire, in a small town called Nuneaton, which is right outside of Coventry, and which happens to be the setting of most of her novels, including Middlemarch. Growing up in the English Midlands at this time would be comparable to growing up in the Midwest United States. It was very agricultural, but not totally cut off from the wider world. There was a main road in the town that ran directly to London. People would often pass through Eliot's hometown of Nuneaton on their way to London. The sense of middleness is very important. Um, the sense of being at the heart of a uh, national imaginary, I think, is also important. But And, and being uh, slightly distant from uh, metropolitan centers, in, in Eliot's case, London, but uh, we know where an ambition would take you to those metropolitan centers. If you were a particularly ambitious person, you'd, you'd want to leave. Eliot was in the middle in another way, too. She grew up in the middle class. She's the third and youngest child of uh, Robert Evans, who is a land agent or a state agent for a wealthy family, the Newdigate family. And a, and a, a state agent is somebody who collects rents on behalf of the landlord, maintains the land, 
does some surveying. Uh, Evans was a former carpenter. And this is kind of like intermediate position between the estate owners and the tenant farmers. And it gave Elliot a perspective on sort of both of those worlds because her father is constantly shuttling between those two. Elliot was raised in a very religious Anglican household. She attended various girls' schools where she studied things like French, music, and geography. You could also call her, I suppose, an autodidact because through her father, she had the run of the Newdigate family library in the great house and therefore read, read a lot but at a very young age. After 16, in fact, she was then quite progressively by her father allowed a tutor. And it's from a tutor who she learned uh, German, among other things, which became very important in her eventual intellectual development. Where does the next phase of her life take her? The next phase of her life is her decision to detach herself from Christianity. Largely through the reading, she detaches herself from it and actually gives up Christianity. At the age of 21, she announces she will no longer be accompanying her father to church. And this led to a rift, very serious rift with her father that only her brother Isaac's intercession helped heal. They, they worked out a deal whereby she would accompany her father to church but not take communion, which seemed to work for both parties. But that, that detachment from Christianity leads her, ultimately leads her into a circle of wealthy, influential, free-thinking radicals in Coventry, this couple, uh, Charles and Cara Bray, who are the sort of center of that circle. And Bray uh, actually arranges to have some of Eliot's early writing published, some reviews of books. And it also connects her in ways that then allow her to take up the job of translating, translating from the German, and she begins to translate the work of major humanist figures from the German. Um, David Strauss, whose book, The Life of Jesus, she translates, and then Ludwig Feuerbach's Essence of Christianity. And these are books that are, you know, it would have known as the higher criticism, that is books that think about Christianity as a historical phenomenon, but not as revealed religious truth. And this humanist doctrine really does become the origins of her intellectual life and colors everything she writes after that. What was this circle discussing? So they were radical in their rejection of Christianity. And did certain political ideas flow from that as well? I mean, I think we would now call that circle in Coventry left wing. We would now say that dispensing with Christianity as uh, the central pillar of, of national life or political life had certain consequences for them. It had consequences about the suffrage. It had consequences about democratic representation, certainly the separation between church and state. Um, and those are all consequences that are, at that point in her life, Eliot seems to have embraced. But it's interesting, actually, uh, she very quickly becomes more politically skeptical than the, those circles that she was with in her 20s and early 30s. And um, she becomes very politically hard to place. But um, she doesn't necessarily become the kind of explicitly left-wing thinker that her mentors were, even though she largely exists within what we would, I think, now call the kind of left-wing milieu. During this time, calls for reform were in the air. For nearly 400 years, Britain's electoral system had remained largely unchanged. Political representation across the country had grown heavily unbalanced, and only a small fraction of the population had the vote. Riots periodically broke out, and in 1832, the British government passed the Great Reform Act, 
to try to resolve the crisis. The Great Reform Act redistributed some seats in Parliament and did marginally increase the size of the electorate. But even with these changes, the voting class was still a small percentage of the country's entire population. Many remained unsatisfied, and organizations such as the Reform League rose up demanding universal male suffrage. In 1867, they achieved most of their goals when Parliament introduced the Second Reform Act. And the Second Reform Act doubled the electorate. It essentially gave the vote to the urban male working class. And that somewhat reduced the power of the landed gentry, but it was very far still from universal male suffrage, let alone the vote being extended to women. But it was a shift, and it accentuated, I think, the sense among a lot of observers that the social underpinnings of British society were changing and, and shifting ever more decisively to cities. And so it's in the process of kind of living through the Second Reform Act, she begins to think back to the First Reform Act, which was the really the, the, the first in centuries, the attempt to redistribute political representation um, because of all the major demographic shifts that had happened in Britain in the intervening period. Now, the other major thing, of course, is that that process of reform to the British constitution and, and to the British electorate is slow. And each time is felt to be both kind of too radical and unsatisfactory. And it happens through legislation. And everyone has their eyes on the continent. In the mid-19th century, revolutions erupted all over mainland Europe. In France, Germany, Italy, and the Austrian Empire, people were revolting against the monarchy in what would later become known as the Revolutions of 1848. But those revolutions didn't spread to Britain. And so I think one of the questions that Eliot had, certainly in the late 1860s, but I would say actually at any point after 1848, is why isn't there any revolutionary force in British society? Why didn't the revolution happen in Britain the way it had in essentially every other European nation? And that is a question that divides thought. Um, some people thinking this is the kind of unique genius of British political life that it prevented those acts. And some thinking actually, and continued to think this well into the 20th century, that it was actually the, the unique uh, and you know, somewhat damaging stubbornness of British political life. It's, it's enduring conservatism that was impervious to revolution. And Elliot is, is of many minds about this, but that I think that, that comparison to the continent and the revolutionary energy, which is really lacking in the Britain of her life is, is very important. Even though Britain didn't experience the revolutions of 1848, this was still a time of radical cultural change in the kingdom. The Industrial Revolution was transforming the economy and nearly every area of social life. It was a shift from what later 19th century sociologists would call community, the idea of these uh, relatively stable, tight-knit, small social units moving to what would become society. Right, a, a society made up of individuals that um, have no intimate connection with one another, no daily connection with each other, but that are actually simply brought together on the basis of an economy, of a kind of cash nexus, by their occupation, and also by technology. I mean, the, the, the major shift that is just apparent in Middlemarch, and is one of the reasons she sets it back when she does, is the appearance of the railroads for the first time which, you know, began to infiltrate the countryside in the early 1830s. 
by the time Eliot's writing Middlemarch, right, the, the road is the dominant technological fact of British life. But she is thinking back to its early days and thinking back to what is both gained and lost in its transition from something like community to something like a, a more alienated society. And that involves urbanization, but it even happens in smaller towns, right? It even begins to alter the fabric of life in smaller towns, which is actually her interest, not in the city, but in how this changes even quasi-rural life. When did she make the decision you know, to be a writer full-time and how did the rest of her career unfold? It happens largely as a result of her father's death. And so in her early 30s, she sets out for London to become a writer, to, to enter intellectual life. And, uh, you know, a tremendously courageous act and one that actually was successful. So she immediately becomes the assistant editor of a magazine called the Westminster Review. And we would probably now call this a kind of left-wing intellectual journal. In her 30s, she's an editor. She's a, she's a, a writer of nonfiction, but primarily an editor. She turns to fiction in her late 30s, actually. So she's always an inspiration for writers who start a little bit later in life, but is an immediate success. And it's in the process of turning to fiction that she takes up the pen name George Eliot and a name that, you know, her, her published fiction would go by until her death and still does, actually, right? So one of the sort of unusual traits is that we still use that pseudonym in ways we don't for other 19th century writers who used pseudonyms. Eliot likely chose her pen name as a tribute to the French novelist Amantine Dupin, whose pen name was George Sand. So that might have been her immediate inspiration for it. It's not a pen name that's adopted because she would have found difficulty getting published necessarily, which would have been the case with, this, let's say, the Bronte sisters who take uh, pseudonyms to mask their identity as women in, in the hopes that that would ease their, their path to publication. Eliot had somewhat more personal reasons for adopting a pseudonym, and that was that at the age of 35, she had fallen in love with and started to live with um, the man who would become essentially her partner for over 20 years, G.H. Uh, Lewis, a fellow intellectual. We would now call him, uh, I suppose, a scientist, although he was also a literary critic and writer on the arts. But the difficult element there is that Lewis was in what we would now call an open marriage with his wife. He and his wife lived apart. They had three children together that they more or less co-raised, although Lewis seems to have been slightly more responsible for their raising. And his wife had four other children with the man she was living with, um, the artist Lee Hunt. At this point, Elliot is in her mid-30s. She's not legally married, but she is living with Lewis essentially as husband and wife. It was very hard to divorce during this time, so it was easier for Lewis, his wife, and Elliot to continue on in this way than to separate and remarry. But this situation isolated Elliot. It particularly cut her off from polite female society. She, within polite society, was kind of unvisitable. Um, she certainly considered it a marriage. She called Lewis her husband. She even legally changed her name to uh, Mary Ann Evans Lewis and she referred to herself and others referred to her as Mrs. Lewis. And, and Lewis's children even called her, their name for her was Mutter, the German uh, word for mother. But it, this was nonetheless a scandal. And I think in part to detach herself from that scandal, both uh, for her own behalf and on behalf of the publishers who'd be, who'd be publishing her work, she adopts the, the pseudonym. 
Despite the difficulties of this arrangement, it was nonetheless a very fulfilling time for Eliot and Lewis. They were a sort of intellectual powerhouse. I mean, he, you know, Lewis is a physiologist, a comparative anatomist. And we have stories about the two of them working in adjoining rooms where Lewis is dissecting frogs in one room. And in the next term, Eliot's writing her fiction. And in the middle of the day, they would compare notes. And, you know, they'd read each other's work, certainly. And in fact, Eliot probably helped Lewis with a lot of his scientific work, including probably writing whole passages for him. And he had a lot of comment to make on on her fiction and, and was really responsible for getting her to write it in the first place. So, you know, it was tremendously intellectually nourishing for both of them. So she... Um found immediate success, even with his later start. Um, did that success lead to financial success? Were people just dying to get her latest novel? Yes, she was not only an immediate success, but remarkably financially successful with her work. Um, in fact, one of the very rare cases in Victorian Britain of a writer who did have financial success with her work. Eliot was also heavily influenced by Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. So the origin of species comes out in 1859 and throughout the 1860s, you know, leading up to her starting work on Middlemarch, it's one of the truly major intellectual influences on her because it fundamentally altered her sense of how change happens. So Darwin's was a very persuasive model of how change operates through the aggregation of countless small, maybe even unintended effects, you know, well beyond the power of any particular, any single entity or any particular agency. And so Eliot starts thinking seriously about how that account of species evolution would have to change how we tell purely human stories, you know, stories about communities and their changes over a period of time, and perhaps even stories about a nation and its change. And it does make her a bit more of a skeptic about attempts toward wholesale change in social arrangements. It puts her in that sense a little bit more, you know, the word I'm tempted to use is something like conservative, but I don't mean that necessarily in a contemporary sense. I mean, literally in the sense of, of conserving, of being careful about the pace of change, of worrying about the effects of change that is too rapid over too short a period of time. And it, it, it is something she's playing with throughout the 1860s. And I think Middlemarch is her way of constructing a, a story in a world whose principles of change look much more like Darwin's evolution than they do anything like revolution, I suppose. What does the title Middlemarch mean? So Middlemarch is a really interesting title because, and peculiar for its moment because it's neither an abstraction like Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility, nor is it a name like, you know, Jane Eyre or David Copperfield. It's a town. It's the town around which most of the action of the novel occurs, but it's also a, a title with some symbolic echoes. For a novel this big, as hard as it is, could you try to tell listeners what is it broadly about? What is the story? It's set in the English Midlands from 1829 to 1832. So those are the years of the First Reform Act. Those are the years when the railways are first coming into the Midlands. It's just before Victoria takes the throne in 1837. So it's, it's within, probably for many of her readers, it's in their childhood. You know, 40 years past. She starts writing the novel 
it's actually two separate novels. Um, she starts, there's a novel called Middlemarch she's writing, which is more centered on the folks who live in town, who are more securely middle class. And there's a second novel she starts writing called Miss Brook, which is about the county families, the, the slightly more um, quasi-aristocratic or the families from the gentry that exist in the surrounding areas around the town. She's writing these simultaneously, thinking of them as independent units, and kind of runs into a dead end with both of them, and then has this eureka moment in 1869 where she thinks, what if I put them together? What if I actually suture them together? And so that's the work that she does throughout 1870s, actually knitting these things together, rewriting them entirely to make them one connected story. The connected story is made up of four independent strands that eventually come together. So the, the, the first strand is um, where the novel begins with a young woman named Dorothea Brooke, who's uh, fairly wealthy, beautiful in a sort of inwardly directed, intense way. Elliot actually calls her ardent. That's her, her favorite adjective for Dorothea, who's passionately interested in what we might now call social justice. She's, uh, she lives with her uncle and desires to something to which she can dedicate her life. And very quickly, as the novel begins, she meets an older clergyman and scholar named Kasabin, who will, in short order, propose marriage to her. And it's a marriage everyone around her cannot endorse. There's a disproportion of age. Kasabin is not exactly prepossessing as a person. And so it's not a love match. But in a typically passionate way, Dorothea has imagined Kasabin as this passport to a world of ideas and high ideals and thinks of herself as a potential helpmeet in his work. He's a researcher in comparative mythology and as a way to educate herself and give her life a kind of purpose. But both the reader and other characters know this marriage does not seem very promising. The second strand is uh, more involved with the town, and that's that uh, a character who is a young doctor and medical researcher named Tertius Lydgate has just arrived in town full of plans to take this small but bustling Midlands town and make it the base for a renewal of medical science, both research into the fundamentals of human tissue and practical matters, like he wants to build a hospital for fever patients, particularly for patients of, of suffering from cholera. So it's not just pure research, but it's also applied research. But he very quickly meets the daughter of the town mayor, who's a very conventionally pretty young woman who's looking for a way to escape the tradesmen's milieu of her family. And like the first strand, this marriage also seems unpromising. The third strand is the mayor's uh, son, uh, Fred Vincy, the, the brother of the woman who will marry Lydgate, who's smart and somewhat feckless. He's a Cambridge undergraduate who's fast getting himself into debt. He has hopes of an inheritance that he thinks are going to solve his problems, but it's not, not at all certain he's going to actually get that inheritance. He's been attached since he was a child to uh, a woman named Mary Garth, who's smart somewhat plain, witty, and maybe even acerbic at times, and is the daughter of a local estate agent. Uh, that is very close to Elliot herself. And very quickly, he actually defaults on a debt, which had been co-signed by Mary's father and plunges Mary's family into financial difficulties. And then lastly, there's this figure, Bolstrode, who's the town banker, who's an evangelical, a, a sort of strenuous evangelical who thinks he's a, a tool of, of God's design on earth. But he has a mysterious past. Um, he is funding the construction of this fever hospital 
and takes on Lydgate as uh, essentially his medical advisor in the construction of this hospital. But very quickly, his whereabouts are discovered by a figure from his past, and he finds himself being blackmailed. So those are the complications with which the novel starts, which are both somewhat independent from each other, but as the novel proceeds, get ever more tightly bound up with each other as we go on. Each of these threads is centered around the question of who gets to stay in this town, Middlemarch, and who is forced to leave. Who's sort of expelled by this area? Who, who gets to remain? Because this is in some sense a Darwinian question, right? It's, it's in other words, how is this place called Middlemarch going to reproduce itself? And who are going to be the people who reproduce it? And with the exception of Fred Vinci and Mary Garth, all the other characters I just mentioned find themselves having to leave by the novel's end. Now, some of them leave for uh, fates that we might think are not necessarily disastrous. Um, others, in some cases, when when after his exposure, for instance, Bulstrode leaves, we don't actually know what happens to him. He's, a, he's an older man by that point, and, and we hear nothing more of him. But it is a question of, of does do you get to stay here or, or not? I, I think in a bigger sense, though, what is common to all of these plot strands is something that it may be, may be too strong a word, but I think it's accurate, it would be something called failure. All of these figures fail at some project they set out for themselves. And she is interested in a failure. She's interested in, in almost what you might call the kind of second life you have, the life you have after a first failure, after a failed marriage, after a career ambition ceases to be possible for you, after there's some hope you planned for yourself that didn't work out, some image you had of yourself that you're having to detach yourself from, and what you make of life after that. And it's not so simple as leaving it behind for Elliot, because I think the way she tells the story is that you you continue to have a relation to that other self that didn't happen. You're still connected to that story of yourself, the, the, the person you didn't become or the choice you didn't take, that actually colors the life you do lead. So that failure and the ways in which one responds to it, I think, are, is the common thread in some ways between all these stories. I think that the ethic we can call this, the ethic that that is attempting to generate is this word sympathy. The idea of attempting to see things through the lens of the other, understanding, as she often says, that other people have a center of gravity that is as powerful as yours, and things will look very different to them. How do you understand the world if you take that very, very seriously? And that is something the novel is trying very hard to do, which is why it's not a biographical novel. It's not a novel told about a single figure. It is constantly shifting between these different figures. And so it rejects the idea of a single version of events that could account for even this relatively small town and what happens within it in a relatively small amount of time, which is a little over two years. So having so many characters with different protagonists, you know, the reader can't quite grasp onto one single kind of heroic protagonist making their way through the world. So every character this novel has, or, or certainly the more important characters the novel has a project. They have an ambition. And that ambition, in one way or another, gets frustrated in the course of the novel. But 
one really key thing about Elliot is the way in which she complicates and is really intentionally trying to complicate the ways in which we might know the world once we have to take others into account in a profound way. And one way that gets complicated by Elliot is her, I would say, it's the question of how much knowledge is too much knowledge of someone else. Is it, it, It's not so simple in Elliot as to say that the more you know someone, the more you understand them and, and the more you understand the world. Actually, it's, it's possible to know too much. Um, often this thinking happens through metaphors and often scientific metaphors in the novel. So at one point, she says, if, if we had a keen vision and feeling of all ordinary human life, it would be like hearing the grass grow and the squirrel's heartbeat, and we should die of that roar which lies on the other side of silence. That's actually, it's, it's a scientific idea because uh, she's referring there, I think, also to the invention of the stethoscope. But the idea that you might actually become too sensitive and take in too much information too soon and, and actually prevent yourself from grasping anything around you. It might be traumatic. The other question that she has is, you know, is a related question would be something like, how close is too close? What's the right proximity or distance from a phenomenon or a person to understand them? And she is continually modulating between metaphors about microscopes and metaphors about telescopes to show us that, in fact, we always need to be moving our perspectives back and forth. We always need to be both trying to get a little closer and also trying to pull back from someone or something to understand them. But it's not, again, it's not so simple as saying you just need to get closer. You just need to understand ever more intimately because that might, in its own way, blind you. There might be things you're not seeing. So this is part of what makes the novel so complicated is that she does not have a single recipe to offer. You know, even sympathy is not a single idea that you can easily use in your own life. It's constantly being complicated by this restless attempt to move you around different distances, uh, different relations between people to try to understand not just where's the best place to stand, but is there a way to aggregate all those places to stand into something? I think that's maybe a good place to start to talk about its reception. So was it a success when it first came out? Um, in in England? It was a success, actually. Um, And partly it was a success because her previous two novels had been less so because she tried different things with those previous two novels. So with Middlemarch, it felt like a return to her natural territory. We're we're back in the Midlands. We're back in a rural setting or quasi-rural setting. And certainly there's there's an element of of traditionalism about the novel. Um, A select few families in... uh, non-urban setting that felt uh, right, and so it was greeted well. But there were things that were disliked about it. There was a lot of concern about the difficulty of Eliot's language, which I think is a little harder for us to now see because what would have been considered overly technical or overly scientific language in Eliot's time has become a little bit more naturalized for us. But these metaphors about microscopes and telescopes and, and even stethoscopes the constant recourse to scientific ways of thinking was thought to be inappropriate in fiction and unnecessarily difficult. Um, over time, of course, as I said, that became less a problem. And, and it eventually became kind of quasi-sanctified. So one of the more famous sentences about the novel is Virginia Woolf's, who said that Middlemarch was the first English novel written for grown-ups. 
meaning that it's not a heroic story of a young person's triumphing over circumstances to marry the person they want to marry or have the kind of life they want to have, but is that story of grown-up disappointment or having made a choice and being forced to stick with that choice through all the kinds of vicissitudes that, that come. And that, I think, has been still the kind of dominant feeling about Middlemarch and helped helped maintain it in the canon of novels that one should read if one is interested in the history of the novel. With Eliot, for the first time, at least in English fiction, we get the lives of characters who are propelled by ideas. So they have intellectual ambitions. It's really central to the the fabric of their lives that they want to change the world in certain ways. And in ways that are not risible, they're not silly. Um, And they're not limited to social ascent or their erotic life, but their ambitions of the mind. And that almost inevitably courts disappointment and failure in Eliot. It, it's, it's, it's interesting that the only successful project in Middlemarch is Middlemarch itself. But all the other projects more or less have to be either, you have to accept a kind of compromise with what you set out to do or you have to give them up in some case. So the giving giving characters this different sort of existence, this 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 idea of intellectual ambition, fundamentally changes how we think about how a story can be told and what it is about one's own story that matters to you when you come to sort of account for success or failure at the end of it. After Middlemarch, Eliot continued writing poetry and fiction. She published a handful of poetic works and one more novel called Daniel de Ronda. What does the, the final chapter for life look like in her death? So Lewis predeceased her, which I think was a, you know, a, a definitely traumatic event for her. And she very quickly after Lewis's death actually married legally a much younger man who would, in fact, named John Cross, who would eventually become her first biographer. Um, Although that marriage doesn't last long because Eliot dies, I think, only two years after um, she marries him. She was never in particularly good health in uh, the last 20 years of her life. Um, but uh, she, her writing becomes ever more experimental and ever more strangely political radic- politically radical. Her last novel is actually a novel uh, whose central character is... Uh, a member of the British aristocracy who discovers his own Judaism and eventually departs for Palestine to work toward the construction of a Jewish state. And, you know, these were political and intellectual ideas that were very, very far from the mainstream. Um, And she was pushing ever farther, I think, in that direction at her death. George Eliot's masterpiece, Middlemarch, reminds us that there are forces greater than ourselves that shape our lives and the world we live in. That realization doesn't have to lead to despair. Instead, we can gain an appreciation for our interdependence, an awareness of the constraints that all people live under, and a commitment to do our best to love and serve our communities, even if those acts are small or unseen. I love the final line of the novel, which reads, The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. A novelist owes something 
to a broader canvas than a single individual and, and a broader sense of consciousness than what's in one person's mind. And that's an almost ethical duty. And that defines, I think, still for people, a sense of the cultural importance of fiction and the cultural importance of, of novels in particular. I think Middlemarch changed the way in which change itself gets narrated. After Middlemarch, it becomes harder to speak of change as something that any one person or even any one text can really do. We become much more of a skeptic, and I think you know we are we are still now cultural skeptics about change driven from the top or change change driven by a single individual or change happening all at once. And Middlemarch is maybe the the onset of that idea that change is much slower, much more complicated, much more inadvertent than we might think and requires a, a, an entirely different toolkit of, of skills and a, a different toolkit of narrative ideas of how narratives get built to account for that. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Dew. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.